Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. and welcome to Paradise Island. This is Under Consultation, a huge episode-by-episode podcast through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and like an overexcited teenager, this podcast has already started. And inviting Luke to feast upon my coconuts, I am Ash Versus. And they're quite delicious. This episode love a bounty, mate. Don't at me. This episode aired on the 19th of November, 1997. The full Monty remains at the top of the UK box office. Aqua's Barbie Girl is still top of the pops. And Final Fantasy VII remains top of the video game chart. So very little has changed since our last episode. Uh, I do need to post a correction, and I will be amazed if we make it to this episode going on the main timeline without someone pointing this out. It has categorically been stated that Aqua's Barbie Girl will not be appearing in the upcoming motion picture. Uh, uh-huh. The manager of the group's lead singer stated it wasn't going to be used due to the history with Mattel after the series of lawsuits against the song's American publisher, MCA Records. So basically, despite actually having used it in a series of commercials themselves in the 2000s with some modified lyrics, Mattel are like, yeah, it would look a bit too much double standards to license a song we previously sued the creators of. Because the episode hasn't gone out into the free feed yet, I actually don't think I've put it into the back end of the free feed yet either. So I still have time to cut out that 20-second chat we had about it. Nah, leave it. Leave it, because then... (laughs) Because then people can at us going, ah, but, and then they'll get to this episode, which we have, as you've pointed out, we have recorded before that episode has gone into the free feed. And we can just go, we know. I suppose it will all depend on how much of our listenership is up to date on the ins and outs of Aqua's legal battles. Mate, you've you've seen our listenership. I reckon a lot of them are up to date on the ins and outs. If not of Aqua, of Mattel. It's a good 
4%, I would wager. And I'm amongst that as well, because I write a lot about Mattel. I mean, I'm part of that 4%, although admittedly, I don't listen to our podcast. Uh, yeah, I do have to, when I when I edit it, I guess I am a listener in that way. I mean, I would say I'm the worst listener when I edit it, because I'm just like, no, that's wrong, cut. No, <laughs> that's not going to stay in, cut. Well, something that hasn't been cut, although was supposed to be cut. Series 7 of Games Master, aka the series that should not have been. We didn't really get to talk about this a lot in the episode zero episode, but we may as well talk about it now because we've got nothing new to cover from the movies, world, or TV and everything like that. This is the series of the show that should not have been. Channel 4, they, well, they decided we're not doing the show anymore. Dominic had said we read the Games Master magazine article where he said categorically Series 6 is the last series that we're doing. Dom had moved on after Series 6 had ended, Series 6 that cancelled itself. He has actually gone to work for Channel 5 and he's doing sports shows over on Channel 5. He has got himself out of the pigeonhole of being the video games guy and is now starting a sports journalistic career. And then Channel 4 call Johnny Finch and Jane Hewland and say, what's going to happen in the new series of Games Master that's airing soon? And they reply with, nothing, we've not had it commissioned. And Channel 4's response was, oh no, it has. We just didn't tell you, it turns out. Thankfully, they decided they could pull it together. And also, thankfully for Dom, this return to Games Master came up at just the right time because he'd kind of just lost the gig at Channel 5 due to having a falling out with uh, the commissioning director or whatever it was. And apparently, Dominic was too live and too dangerous for Channel 5, which is amazing because, as we've discussed, Channel 5 were happy to show porn. Ash, are you trying to tell me that Dominic Diamond had a falling out with someone? This sounds very unlike him at this point of his life. It's, 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 it's scandalous if true. The, the funny thing actually there is that he, he talks about this in the book is that this is the most content he's sort of been in life. And it's when you watch through series seven and you compare it to four, five, and six, you can feel that through the screen. He's in a very good relationship, a relationship that's very much grounding him as well, grounding him to the point where he doesn't do any overseas features this series. There's no features at all, as far as, far as I'm aware. Like, they don't go overseas for anything. So he's very grounded, and he's really, really happy. I think it also helps that the Paradise Island setting, you know, kind of like, it's such a sunny and bright setting compared to some of the other series. But he himself has got a bit of a sunny disposition about him. This does feel... It, it's so odd that we've been on this journey from the slightly nervous Dominic of Series 1 through to the much more finding his feet of Series 2, then Dex, then the angry young man of Dominic in Series 4, through 5 and 6, and then here we are, 7. Other than the fact that they are counting down to the end, that Dominic literally opens his show by going... 10 episodes, and that's your lot. We're donezo. It kind of feels like they're just enjoying the ride this time. They know where they are. They know who they are. They know what they're doing. There's some bits that have come back. There's some bits that haven't. And despite some elements of this series that have aged awfully, it is a show that feels very comfortable in its production, despite the fact that to my mind, this is the most dangerous setting they have ever done. I mean, literally, 
I am amazed no one died during this series. It's quite the set, the, uh, the the Paradise Island set. It's filmed in a studio, but, uh, you know, it's real sand, it's real water, it's real this and it's real that, but it does look very nice. It looks very nice. It's the real water bit that gets me of, OK, lads, you've got real water. You also have CRT monitors just by that real water. It's fucking terrifying. And I, I think you're right that it's they've got this attitude about them. Like every episode, because this is only 10 episodes. And the reason it's only 10 episodes is because Channel 4 did not tell them they were getting another series. So they could only have time to make 10 episodes. And even then, they really only make nine. Um, it's got a real end of school year vibe to it. Like every episode has got this end of school year vibe to it. Series six, they knew was the last one. And Hewland had decided that we're not going to do another series of Games Master because we don't want to Dexter it again and get a new host in to do it. So we'll just call it quits there. So Series 7 is the surprise series for them. Everyone just comes back knowing that, ah, well, this is just nine episodes of a big f*** around and then we'll move on with the rest of our lives. Like It was almost like they didn't realize how important it was that it was coming to an end. So the fact that they get to do it again and knowing again that it's going to be the last time really just means that everyone's having a fun and a laugh. There's like changes to the show format and it's just a case of, yeah, we feel this will work. And it kind of does. Having the Girl Fridays introduce what's coming up on the show as they do in episode one. That's a new thing. That's not something we've had before. A strange thing to bring in with only nine episodes to go. But even just like the changing up of the review formats of, you know, we've had sort of multiple talking heads review games before and we sort of saw in five and six that talking head dynamic where they were literally you know, particularly in series five rick and dave going back and forth with reviews we saw it a little bit less in in series six but here in series seven it's two brand new faces for the reviews and they're just sat next to each other having a chat to camera they change up quite a bit of this for what is the very last time we're going to be doing anything. And I'll touch on this when we get to this part of the episode. The reviews are excellent. Yeah, they really are, actually, yeah. We'll, we'll get to them when we get to them, but they are, particularly in this episode as well, I think they do a, a really, really good job of, of how they're presented. But like the last thing I suppose we'll say before we get into the episode, Dom mentions in the book that while Series 6 is technically the most polished Games Master ever got to, Series 7 is the most fun he had. And I think that is because every episode has that end-of-year vibe to it. And a lot of the guests, you know, by his own admission, are just friends of his. So it's not even like there are people coming in. There are people coming in to promote things. All Saints are on this series to promote things. But the majority of the guests are just friends of Dominic Diamond who've come to hang out for the day. It's It's got, oh, I hope Dom never hears this. It's kind of got a Noel's house party vibe in that regard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he says it's got a bit of a TGI Friday feel to it. And I can sort of see some of that because TGI Friday's got a lot of that, ah, we're just fucking making this up as we go along attitude to it. And Series 7 has somewhat of that, but a more polished version, I guess, because it's more edited. That's right, folks. Let's start to get into the episode. This title sequence is a hell of a thing. It really is, yeah. And they had quite big plans for this. The idea is, because this is, Series 7 is a dream. 
I mean, I think if you say in the in the canonical world of Games Master, Series 6 is the end point. They cancel themselves because everything in Series 7 is all in Dominic's heads. So we have this big dream sequence where he is running down a corridor and the idea that Dom had for it is that he would run past every other series of Games Master. So you would look through one door, there's Series 1. Look through another door, there's Series 2. And they decided, or rather he was told, we don't have 50 grand spare, so we're just going to film some stuff at a veg stall and we'll make it up as we go from there. I also love the cheapness of this, and you can tell how last minute this is. It's just filmed in Dom's flat. And you know that's Dom's flat because Dom has had pictures of himself taken in that flat. There's pictures in the book of him in that flat. So it was just like, well, we haven't got a lot of time. We haven't got a lot of money. So we'll just film this in Dom's house. I hope they deliberately made it messier before filming because fucking hell, there are raccoons living in that mess in that living room. I don't know, because the pictures that are in the Games Master book reflect what is seen in Series 7, but perhaps they messed up for those pictures as well. You don't want to sit down without looking where you're sitting. You'll get your ass bitten off. But you know what? At least he has his girl Fridays with him. He also has uh, a bevy of, of school children watching, although we kind of talked about this with Series 4. They're not there actually they're not actually there they they filmed the series with no audience then filmed those shots afterwards to make it look like there was a live audience there for it but there is still no live audience for this series it is very canned laughter when the laughter and stuff appears because you can hear the children laughing but you can also occasionally hear the adults on set that are laughing guffawing cheering or booing or whatever so it's 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 fine it's absolutely fine And also, I can understand why they wouldn't have kids there, because then someone definitely would have tripped over a monitor's cable and died horribly. I think it's a weird choice, though, considering that, you know, when they talk about this show and, you know, Johnny Finch has been very vocal about this. Well, he was very vocal about this on set in terms of, you know, how they present women on this show. Their demographic is teenage boys. So it's just very weird for me to have this almost like series two, series three school kid vibe watching the show. There's a very easy answer for that, Luke, and it's in the credits. Is it they're all just kids from the drama school? Oh, yeah. Diamond's Talent School or Diamond's uh, Drama School is, is credited in the end credits. I mean, like that, that's not a surprise at all. It's, uh, what more surprises me is just the, the visual choice of doing it. Like if you haven't got your target demo available i probably wouldn't have just done an audience maybe it's something channel 4 wanted and it's a case of well what do we have available we've got dom's mum's drama school they've been good before i mean the thing is it's not like they're actually sat on those flotillas in their swimming cozies and t-shirts and flip-flops and stuff and it makes for a great visual i love the concept that there is this island and kids are just floating around on rafts and and um, barges and banana boats, just watching people play video games. It's brilliant. I I think stylistically, it's a bizarre choice. Mate, Patrick Moore's being turned into the sun from Teletubbies. There's a lot of bizarre choices going yeah, on here. On the the Patrick Moore thing. Well, maybe we'll talk about Games Master in a little bit, but I think this is a a shockingly rubbish design. Oh, hello, viewers, and welcome to another series of Games Master. You know, life on this desert island would be horrendous if I hadn't come upon my two girl Fridays, which was a good thing. 
Uh, they invited me to feast upon their coconuts and now we eke out a simple animalistic yet happy living as we prepare for the final 10 chapters of this great book called Games Master because this is the last ever series. Yes, the last ever series. We don't care how much Channel 4 beg us to come back. You can shout, you can scream, you can stamp your feet, you can weep great bales of tears, but in 10 weeks time, we are taking this show off the air for good. Until 2020-ish. For some reason, and this was something that would have definitely been done in the edit process, they decided, no, we're going to speed up, reverse, speed up, Dominic turning to make a proper Looney Tunes boing xylophone kind of double take noise i think that's a dominic choice he talks about this in the book with series six that they added in a lot of sound effects in post and he just thought they were really really funny so i wonder when he came around to series seven he was like oh i thought that was brilliant in series six let's do more of them in series seven but purposefully this time so that's it the clock is ticking and on that bombshell Girl Fridays, what's on the show? Joe Guest goes through a town destroying huge civic erections in Rampage. But we begin with today's event, which we like to call the Two Big Tombs of Lara Croft. That felt weird to do. But I, I, I love it. Like, they just, they, the Girl Fridays, we, we talked about this in Series 6, which they started with but never really picked up on, like, in later episodes, where the mermaids had distinct personalities. They were more than just the eye candy that the angels were. So this is almost like, it's like a natural evolution. In series five, the angels are just there to be, to look nice. Series six, they're given characters. Series seven, they're given a purpose. They introduce the challenges. They throw to Games Master. They tell us what's coming up on the show. Dominic's almost redundant in this. Dom just shows up to do knob gags, and then they do the hard work in setting up the show. They've got something to do. What's next? Ah, yes. A joke about Lara Croft's tits. This is a show that knows it's the last series. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, Channel 4 aren't going to commission us for another run anyway, because even if they do, we're going to say no. So they go balls to the wall. After a bit of a drought of knob gags, Series 7 is littered with them. Like, in this opening thing where he's talking about how Dom's able to feast upon their coconuts, the, this animalistic lifestyle that they bring. And then the girl Fridays, he just... They talk about having huge erections and Lara Croft's tits. It's amazing that this did go out at 6pm. Hey, it did. I watched it. You watched it. We're perfectly well-adjusted adults. Ish. Ish, yeah. And we are heading on to our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Greetings once again, my lovely viewers, and may the light of Games Master shine upon your lives. It's good to be back. And you can be sure that I've prepared a series of challenges for our intrepid contestants that over the coming weeks will test their games playing ability to the limits. We begin today with the most highly awaited game of the year, Tomb Raider 2 on the PC and PlayStation. Two players must take control of the delectable Lara Croft in the race to finish a special custom level of the game which I prepared. I have issued both of my contestants with boozy machine guns along with an unlimited supply of ammunition. As in two way to one, exploration will be the key to success. No stone must be left unmoved, no avenue ignored if they wish to avoid a fruitless quest. <laughs> Good luck. I just love this concept of when the giant head of Games Master rises up to give these challenges, that 
like you've got the island here, like at the front, and then you've got the kids on the flotillas, and Games Master just rises behind them. But of course, because he's the sun, it's just like their entire backs are slathered in polyfiller just to act as sun factor 3000. I know you said like a few minutes ago you weren't a fan of this design. I think it could have been done a bit better, but I actually did kind of dig it. I like the idea of Patrick Moore being the sun. It's it's a nice, cute Teletubbies joke. And I, I think it works from that aspect. I think I miss the grandeur, like a particular, you know, we look at series five designs of Games Master and, you know, what they did for him in series six as well. It's my least favorite of the Games Master designs. And it feels like it's the one that's had the least effort put into it because it sort of, it starts with, let's do a Teletubbies joke and it ends there. Aside from the fact it's also a nuclear explosion. I don't know if it's my least favourite. I mean, it's not my favourite, but I think I'm fine with it being simplistic because so much of the rest of the show is kind of stripped back as well. It's not that it looks cheap. It doesn't look cheap. But the set, as beautiful as it is, and it is a beautiful set, it's just nice and calm and brightly lit and well made and just well positioned but it's also not it's not too busy you know there's not like thousands of dials like series two and all the pipe work there isn't all the chains and fire of series four there's none of the green screen work of series five there's none of the water effects and all that kind of like the detritus under the sea of series six it is just a case of here is a desert island. Dominic lives in that hut. There's a pontoon that brings celebrities and Patrick Moore's the sun. I think it's also a victim of short production. Haven't got time to do anything bigger than this. So we just make him the sun. There's no gimmicks around him filmed on the green screen. It's literally just, no, let's just film your face and we'll superimpose it onto the sun and, co- and colour it yellow. So I, I, I certainly get it from that aspect. It's, yeah, for me, it's, it's not my favourite of the... It's my least favourite of, of the, the, the Games Master designs. But I will also say, it's I don't know what else you would have done. It's a desert island. Of course Games Master's the sun. Like, what else is he going to be? A monkey? Like, no, of course, you, you do him as the sun. Maybe, because you know they love their pineapple graphics in this. Yes. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe what you would have is like, what are we playing, Games Master? And one of the Girl Fridays just chops open a pineapple and Games Master's face is inside it. And he's just like, ah, hello, there you are. Tomb Raider 2. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to become a daiquiri now. Terrible. But we are playing Tomb Raider 2, and this is a... Awesome, awesome challenge. Series 7 has got some really good games playing in it, and they started this series off really, really strong here by not only doing a Tomb Raider 2 challenge, the hot new game, uh, you know, for, for 1997, it's a level and a challenge specifically made for Games Master, Bucky O'Hare is, with the best Tomb Raider players that they could find. It's got a, a real, like, that Series 5 onwards vibe of we're actually just looking for expert games players as opposed to just kids off the streets. Absolutely. These guys know how to play, and they're clearly good players because the setup they're playing on is not good. I dread to think how much their backs hurt by the end because the monitors and keyboards are really low down and they're sat on barrels and they're proper hunched over. But this is technically a custom level 
I say technically because it is essentially an edited version of the Tibetan foothills level. Uh, some bits have been changed, some extra weapons have been given, you seem to be much more resilient to being kind of run over by skidoos or snowmobiles, as most other people would call them. Yeah, it is a customised level, but it's not a completely unique level. I suspect it benefits from something that uh, IDOS came up with with the relatively quick development cycle on Tomb Raider 2, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm sure, which is they actually made a level editor, which just made it way quicker to put levels together that were actually used in the finished game. So when it comes to something like this, they're able to pull a demo or just take the finished level or whatever make a few modifications, simplify a few challenges, throw in some extra weapons to make it look flashier, an eagle, whatever, and boom, off you go to the races. But to say it's a completely custom level is not true because there are bits of this level that I'm like, I've played that. Because I got Tomb Raider, so I got it for uh, my birthday, in fact, uh, of 1997. I recognised a lot of what, of what was going on in here. Also, bear in mind as well, you know, this would have been filmed way before the game was out. So it is likely just it's demo levels. It's this, that, and the other. So it is customized for Games Master in a way, because it, as you said, they add extra bits and bobs into it. But I think that it is it presents itself smartly in that we have got a custom level made for it. And, I, you know, we haven't had a lot of those across games masters run but when we have had them it's had this real like oh cool like you know i think back to the zool challenge in in series two of like a, oh wow you're actually still what you're working with these people to give you challenges specifically made for you and it's especially impressive that they got this because tomb raider 2 i love tomb raider 2 it's probably my favorite of the original tomb raider run of tomb raider 1 2 and 3 uh, certainly the one I've got the strongest memories of playing, even though I know I played all three of those PS1 games. But this had a development cycle that was so short, the entire thing could be described as a crunch. No, that's what that, you know, we, it, it is a more commonly used term now. But this is crunch development. This is, let's get this out as quickly as possible because Tomb Raider 1's been such a hit. Production began immediately after Tomb Raider, the original, started selling great guns. The production cycle of this was not more than eight months, which was just draining. There's a lot of stories from Tomb Raider 2, and it's the sort of stories that I don't... Maybe it's because I'm, as I'm getting older, I, I, these sort of stories bum me out more than they, they would have done years ago. The stories of people sleeping at the office. Actually, we kind of talked about this a little bit in last series with the, the Sega arcade development and people talking about, oh, yeah, you know, you just sort of sleep under your desk and this and the other. You know, maybe in your 20s, that is a really cool thing to do. But as someone who is, you know, I'm, I'm pushing 40, that idea is a fucking nightmare to me. Like, you know, I was reading stories recently about the uh, Twitter developers. There's a floor in the, the Twitter headquarters that's just got bunk beds there so you can just go and sleep. And that sounds like a living nightmare to me. The idea of having designated bunk beds or designated sleep areas at work, it bothers me as a concept, but only if it's as a reaction rather than a proactive thing. And by that, I mean, uh, I paid a trip to Apple's campus. This is going back to 2002 or 2003 or so. I had a friend who worked there at the time and it, we got back to San Francisco like really late at night. We'd driven from L.A. and he was like, oh, I need to pick some stuff up from, the, from my office at Apple do you want to visit the campus? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. And I went round and there were people working there, but it was a case of 
you were meant to work X hours a week. And as long as you got line management approval, you could start work at 10 o'clock at night and finish at six o'clock in the morning. You know, you could do that. So there were people there, there were people on breaks. I walked past a couple of people playing, I can't remember what the game was, some game or another, like on a on a PlayStation that was there. But they also had like kind of a floor of essentially hotel rooms. And that was there basically. So if you did end up sleeping on site for whatever reason, you you didn't just have bunk beds, but you did have a area where you could go, you could shower, you could sleep, you could get away from your desk for a bit. That, I think, is kind of fine. It is at least doing more than just going, here's some blankets and some pillows, or we're taking a floor of a building and putting in f***ing bunk beds. It's it's a different mentality as well in terms... Like, I had a job, uh, uh, many, many jobs back, where... When I signed up and I, you know, I went for the, the interview and stuff and my first day, they were like, these are the hours that you work in the week, but you're expected to do more than that. Like it's it's it was a case of the yeah, you you know, your job is nine till five, but really, you know, it's actually seven till seven, seven till ten, really is that that sort of attitude, but we're not going to pay you any extra for that. But this, like, you know, with Tomb Raider 2 and some of these other video games that you see now, like like some of the, the AAA games that get made, it is just a case of, no, we've got hard deadlines that we need to hit, um, and we've not really given you enough time to get it done, so you're just going to have to sleep here. And if you're really dedicated to it, you'll sleep here and, and get it done. Back on Tomb Raider 2, which is, you know, I think what some people might come to this podcast for, but I can't imagine many people have. It's not working conditions related, but it is, this game did very, very well. Like it was, you know, it was crunch. It was a, not rush development, but it was a tight development. It was short, but they got it out. And what they got was a massive, massive hit on their hands. Like Tomb Raider did well for Eidos, Tomb Raider 2, I think, is the game that really pushed Lara Croft into the mainstream attention. It was also, to a degree, a platform exclusive, or rather, a console exclusive, because Luke, guess what? What's that? There was a Saturn version planned. Tomb Raider 2 was destined to be on Sega's golden child that definitely wasn't dying on its ass. But a number of things happened, one of which is IDOS signed a deal with Sony, making the console version exclusive to the PlayStation until the year 2000. And the other of which is the Saturn version was likely going to depend on a 3D accelerator cartridge that was being designed for the Saturn conversion of Virtua Fighter 3. Which we talked about with the Virtua Fighter 3 release didn't get done. So console exclusivity... No hardware accelerator cartridge. Oh dear. Bye-bye Saturn port of Tomb Raider 2. On paper, it was a really smart move on Sony's part to sign a deal that made it... Uh, yeah, we should say console exclusive because it was on PC. I had it on PC. That was what I got it for, uh, for my birthday in 1997. But yes, it was console exclusive. And it was a smart play by them because it's a way to guarantee you're going to have the hottest game on uh, your system and make people, more people buy your systems and stuff. But 
really, like, with the benefit of hindsight, they needn't have bothered because the Saturn couldn't actually handle the game and the N64 wouldn't have been able to either. But look, we do get a Tomb Raider game of some kind on a console that looked like a guy holding his butt open. It did, yeah, although, you know, it was also outside of that, uh, that exclusivity. So, yes, but Tomb Raider on the N-Gage did at least come out, which is more than you could say for the Saturn port of Tomb Raider 2. I was a big fan of Tomb Raider 2. I loved this game. I played it a lot. I didn't actually finish it. Did a lot of like, you know, the Tibetan level. And then when you go off to Venice and did all that, like I remember playing those two levels a lot and not really getting much further than that. Because the game is, you know, I was, I was quite into games and I still am to this day. But I very much enjoyed the exploration of the house bonus that you can do, which is that you can just walk around Lara's mansion and you can go and find treasures and stuff from the first game, or you can go and do this like an assault course in the back garden or, you know, in the grounds. And you can lock the butler in the fridge. You can go down to the pool and this and the other. And I, me and my friends just spent a long time, not so much playing the game, but just doing all the mansion stuff. It was a great little bonus feature. Now you'd kind of consider it part of a hub world, as it were, in a lot of games. I'm very excited though, because have you seen the game Power Wash Simulator? I have not. It is literally what it says. It's a power washer simulator and they're getting DLC and the latest DLC expansion is Croft Mansion. So you can go around and power blast Croft Mansion. And I want to believe that as you go around the mansion cleaning it, you find a walk-in freezer and you can power wash the frozen corpse of a butler. I hope you can. And he walks out and he's like, Moon Pie, what a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I loved Tomb Raider 2 so much. In fact, going back and watching some videos of it in preparation for this episode, I realized that a lot of the memories I had of the first Tomb Raider were actually just Tomb Raider 2. I can't remember most of the original Tomb Raider. I remember playing this. I remember playing it all the way through to the end. I remember that shower scene with the fourth wall being broken. There is the nude raider code that causes Lara to blow up. As I kind of said earlier, that this is the end that pushes Lara into the mainstream because, you know, Tomb Raider is a game that stars Lara Croft. Tomb Raider 2 feels like this is Lara Croft's next game. If you sort of see what I'm saying, like, you know, the difference between the, the two attitudes towards it because she is front and center you know when the movie comes out it's lara croft tomb raider because lara croft is a bigger sell than than tomb raider is she becomes a massive pop culture icon off the back of tomb raider 2 and she basically carries the franchise for the longest while and it's so interesting because there is another famous archaeologist in pop culture and his journey was exactly the same because tomb raider Lara Croft in Tomb Raider 2, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which only gained the Indiana Jones title later on because you had Raiders, then a re-release as Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's kind of, it, it's got that thing of like, oh, well, actually, the thing that people loved the most about Raiders of the Lost Ark was Indy. We better make sure that his name is front and center so people know that this is an Indiana Jones movie. You can see that with more Tomb Raider games. Tomb Raider 3, starring Lara Croft. Just in case you were worried that we were going to sneak in a new character. No, no, no. 
This stars Lara Croft. Don't worry about it. Like an overexcited teenager, this challenge has already started. So I'm going to ask our two contestants, Jake Peters and Paul Wilson, to pause a while. Because to you at home, they're men of mystery. And you deserve to know more. Jake Peters, first of all, welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you, Dylan. Now, uh, you've got a girlfriend over in Japan. I have. That must have quite difficult. It is. It is. I'm looking forward to Christmas when she's coming home. Yeah. I mean, does she send you photographs? She everything? sends me emails every morning. Uh-huh. Not photographed? Not from her. Not from her? From other women? <laughs> okay, Jake, uh, let's move on to you, Paul. A different story. Now, you're a, a bit of a pants-related disaster on your way here today. Yeah, I washed my pants in with the red, and they come out pink. What, were they white originally? They were very white. So you now have pink pants? I'm the pink pants man, yes. Okay. I kind of like the element of we are joining this challenge midway through, because this is one of those episode long challenges you know this will be the starting challenge and the final challenge we basically just pause our game briefly here so that dom can have a chat with them and it's a very series six series five conversation which is very little about the game and what birds do you know yeah because we start with jake and jake's like yeah I've got a girlfriend in Japan. He talks about the difficulties of a long-distance relationship, but she does send him emails every day. Dom's like, oh, yeah, photographs, photography, he asks knowingly. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. No, no, no photos. Well, no photos from her. <laughs> Dom's reaction of, what, from other women? And Jake suddenly realizes, like, no, 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 I've caught myself in a problem here. Oh, no, a circumstance. What do I do? And, you know, if we're not going to be talking to uh, Paul about birds, there's only one other topic that we can talk about, and that's pants. Pants-related disaster. He washed his pants, they got him with some red socks, and now they're pink. Luke, he's the pink pants man. As an interview segment, it's so what Games Master has become. Like, not a question about Tomb Raider. It's all just, have you got a girlfriend? Are you wearing pants? That That's Dom's only line of questions that he really cares about. But now they are no longer two international men of mystery. They get to slap their headphones back on, basically, so they can't hear the commentary team saying, look at these Burks. Yeah, it's so they don't hear Rick Henderson say, well, this person's doing better than the other person, because they can't see how well the other one is doing. Because I'm now joined by Rick Henderson. Rick, welcome back to the show. It's fantastic to have you. Oh, it's fantastic to be here and yeah. for you to have me. Thank you. Now, Rick, uh, there's been a couple of cosmetic changes to Lara Croft for the sequel, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. Lara Croft this time has got this flowing ponytail, even when she stood still. I think she's got a head infested full of lice or right. something. I think I, Rick, I read that in the back of the box myself. This opening like gambit here from Rick and Dom kind of tells you everything that you need to know about them, which obviously has been expanded upon within the book. Because Dom's like, oh, it's fantastic to have you back. And Rick finds that very funny. And it's only because they had a massive falling out between Series 6 and Series 7 and had not spoken until they met on set for Series 7. Rick says it was something to do with the football team, that they were taking turns to run their Sunday league. Dominic can't really remember what they fell out about, but within five minutes of being back on set together, it was like nothing had ever happened. Dom and Rick were running this Sunday league team because Dom had an a, a article piece in FHM, which was about the misadventures of a Sunday league football team that was rubbish. And because of the fact that they were rubbish, it made for, you know, a, a very good FHM article. But yeah, apparently they just had a massive falling out. According to Rick Henderson, it was over the football team. But either way, they were like not on speaking terms. But Rick says that he was very surprised when he got the call to go back 
because he didn't think that Don wanted to have anything to do with him. Don talks about, you know, that's kind of the magic of Series 7. Without this series, he and Rick just might not have spoken again. Maybe you should have invited Dave back. (laughs) (laughs) Dave would not have liked what this show has become. Dom doesn't beat around anyone's bush here. He's talking about the cosmetic upgrades that Lara's had this time round. Her hair, Luke. Of course, the hair. It's always moving. It's got lice. (laughs) I love that this was Rick's natural deduction of like, is it physics? Is it a new animation routine? Is it an environment thing? No, it's lice. Just so many lice. I mean, it does move independently from her body. So I think Rick's probably onto something here. I do love that this is 1997 and here we are. We're in 2023 and in a lot of games, at least, long hair. It's still shit. It's still an issue. Rick's talking about how they're playing this with a new 3D FX graphics card as well. So this is why it looks so nice. It does look better than I remember Tomb Raider 2 looking for me because I was just playing it on a PlayStation 1 on a 14-inch CRT. This, even with the years and VHS degradation, looks like a crispy game. It looks better than when I was running it on my PC as well because I would not have had such a fancy graphics card. But we find out that Jake is doing worse than Paul is at this current point in time. Jake decided that the best way to deal with boulders rolling towards you is to shoot them. You never know. They, they did say that this game has got brand new features. And maybe he thought the new feature was, you shoot the boulders. That well-known thing for destroying large amounts of rock, handguns. Yeah, you shoot the rocks and then they split into smaller rocks. You shoot those ones and they split into smaller rocks again. Then you just walk over them. He gets killed by them three times. There's a lot of deaths throughout this challenge. He gets killed by them, but gets past them. And it has jumped through the glass pane but did not grab the wall because he didn't know there was a wall there to grab. So he just hit it, off, dush, down he goes. It does look like a glass pane. I think it's meant to be ice, but just a very thin vertical sheet of ice. Paul, however, may have taken longer to kill the eagle at the start, which is a brand new feature. He had the smart tactic. Well, some might say smart. He jumped over the boulders. Not cleanly. He still got clipped by them, but not so badly that he died. I love the whole thing of the first thing you do in this custom level is you need to kill an eagle later on there's some snow leopards you also need to kill basically you've got like the penguin guide to endangered animals and it's a fucking checklist eagles gone snow leopards gone god the pandas will be mad when they see this game (laughs) we then catch up to them we join them in progress they're now both in the water we see a really nice map I do like the dis- the graphics they use for this to show where they are on the map. It gave me real Crystal Maze vibes. I was about to say Crystal Maze to this, yeah. Paul is drowning. Jake has found the wall and is climbing. I guess Jake is ahead by virtue of not drowning? Yeah, Jake is ahead because not only has he got out of the water, he's climbed up, which is a brand new feature of the game. You know, A lot of this level is designed to be, here are the new things in Tomb Raider 2, the eagle, the wall climb, etc., He even gets to kill a couple of lads before getting on the skidoo. And he is told to go on, Lara, hop on that big, red, powerful, shiny thing. Knob gags. Jake tears off on the snowmobile while Paul probably continues to drown. Yeah, as I've written in my notes here, Paul is swimming aimlessly. 
Just keep swimming, Luke. Appearing in arcades across the country as we speak is the latest instalment of the beat-em-up that bestowed fatalities upon an unsuspecting soft, fluffy pink world. Mortal Kombat 4 brings a 3D look to the series and sports a host of new features like weapons and breakers. New characters include Wind God Fujin and arch-villain Chinook who's based on your mum. Old Combatians are represented by the likes of Liu Kang and Scorpion. Of course, there are legions of gruesome fatalities, but if you want to see these, you'll have to tune in for our Mortal Kombat event in next week's show. Well, Mortal Kombat just keeps on releasing, only this time, it's now in 3D. And and and, and, and features weapons. And breakers, which basically just appears to be literally snapping your spine in half, but not a fatality. I guess what is now known as brutalities or x-ray moves in the modern yeah, Mortal Kombat? I think it's, yeah, it's the x-ray things now where you basically just like zoom in and you see a skull being smashed up and stuff. But also, look, Chinook is in the game and is based on your mum. <laughs> <laughs> that got such a laugh out of me. A big, big laugh out of me. Also, in addition to your mum, some of the old gang are there, Raiden, Liu Kang and Scorpion. Lots of fatalities, but if you want to see them, you'll have to check out next week's show. And that is also why we are probably going to leave the Mortal Kombat discussion there. We've learned from our mistakes. We haven't done indeed, yes. Yeah. So we'll be talking about Mortal Kombat 4 next week. But if you do want to jump back into the archives, uh, myself and Ketchup from Ketchup and Mustard talked about Mortal Kombat 4 quite a bit in our Evolution of Mortal Kombat on Games Master episode, where I sort of have already reviewed that challenge briefly. Certainly not as in much detail as we'll do it next week. Even death itself is no escape from a multi-million dollar Hollywood sequel, but the Alien Saga returns to the big screen next week. Ripley is back, she's now part lady, part alien, and much, much harder. Things start to go wrong when Ripley's alien-infested home is gatecrashed by a gang of space traders who obviously haven't seen the other three films and are relying on Winona Ryder to prevent him being quite literally turned into cold meat salad. If you have the stomach and the fake birth certificate for it, Alien Resurrection is released on the 28th of November. Exciting second news article. Exciting for me, at least. I really got a kick out of seeing this because Alien Resurrection is hitting cinemas. I was going to say, speaking of stretching things out, Alien Resurrection is here. Uh, and it is just Dom running through the plot. And bloody hell, that trailer is so 1997. There's a lot about that movie that is 1997. I got through making notes on this episode and I immediately thought, I've not watched Alien Resurrection since I got the Blu-ray set. Actually, no. I've probably watched it once more since then, also on the Blu-ray set. I always say when we get to these movies, oh, I'm probably going to go back and watch that. And I never do. But Luke, guess what? Did you watch this one? I did. I watched it before we recorded this episode. And it is okay. Although I watched it on Disney+, Plus, which means I only watched the theatrical release. And there are definitely some scenes missing. And it is not the best alien movie it is a functional alien movie but it's got a great cast some great design and sigourney weaver is having a lot of fun in it i think alien resurrection is a very beneficial of the fact that way shitter alien movies have been made since its release which has made it no longer the worst of the alien movies i quite like alien resurrection i particularly like the concept of alien resurrection which is wayland yutani are cloning Ripley because she has got the alien queen. And it's just this constant 
attempt and trial and error to create a new version of Ripley just so they can have a new alien queen. I love that as a concept, as a way to get out of the very definitive endpoint you'd written for yourself in Alien 3. It's a brilliant little sci-fi twist, but it is like, it, it's so 1997 as a movie. Uh, it's a very late 90s action movie. I don't think it's as bad as some people will make it out to be. Part of its problem is that it's also in a series that has Alien and Aliens. So there's a very high bar set. And if you don't come close to that, you sort of feel worse off, even if you are just, as you say, okay. We will go into this more because this is a box office number one. Yeah, I really, really dug watching this again, even though it wasn't a great film. And also, I'm sure we'll have some things to say about Brad Dourif when we get to it. Oh, yeah, it's always worth having a chat about Brad Dourif. But we're not done with news just yet. There's another thing we've talked about in the past. Released on Friday is a title that many people are calling a watershed in the history of gaming. Blade Runner uses state-of-the-art real-time graphics to recreate the world of the original movie with stunning accuracy. Like the offices of Games Master, it has over 70 detailed characters with their own artificial intelligence. The creators promise a different experience every time you play the game. Most impressive of all, though, is the fact that Blade Runner doesn't need a PC the size of Swindon to work and will run quite happily on a basic P90, although the Game Boy version might struggle. And yeah, we've got another Ridley Scott connection here because the Blade Runner game is upon us. I've, I've been, I've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast before, but I had this game. My brother got this game because my brother loved Blade Runner. Its whole appeal was, and you know, uh, Dom talks about this in the news item here, you don't need a really fancy PC in order to run it. It will look as great as it would do on a high-spec-end PC. It will look as good as that on your bog-standard Windows 95 machine. And that is not exactly true. No. It does run, because we had a bog-standard Windows 95 machine, and Blade Runner did run on our machine, so I'll give it credit for that. But we never got smooth video. The video was always jumpy. The, the music would play, but the actual visuals themselves would judder and they would jump. And you have that, like the scene at the start when your car lands and it is just like, da, 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 da. But once the game actually starts going, it would run smoothly. It was just video. It didn't do quite as well as perhaps it was advertised to do on a bog standard PC. To say that this game doesn't need a 3D graphics card like they're using in Tomb Raider 2 is a half-truth. More accurately, it doesn't support 3D accelerator cards because whereas 3D accelerator cards like the 3DFX are all about shifting polygons about, this game is based on voxels. It's a different technology, it's a bespoke engine, and it did mean that you could get very, very good-looking visuals on lower-spec PCs, but to get the smooth video playback and the smooth animation and the clarity of the voxels, you did need something with a bit more oomph. Dominic's absolutely right. It'll run happily on a P90, but it would run a hell of a lot happier on a Pentium 166. That is exactly it. Like it's, the, It doesn't hamper the gameplay in any way but you won't get the smoothest of animations in the cutscenes. 
essentially what it boils down to. At least, at least that's what it boiled down to for us. And this is a game that was so good to play at the time. They did so much different, so much bespoke. It wasn't a retelling of the movie that would be boring. It was a story that was happening in parallel. So while you are playing this game as the protagonist, Ray McCoy, technically Harrison Ford is running around elsewhere and you will encounter other characters from that first film in this game who are also still taking part in that first film. It's a really, really clever way of doing a side story and have it be part of the same universe without you necessarily knowing exactly what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. It looked great, it sounded great, and you can still play it today. Unfortunately, there was a remastered version done, and I think we talked very excitedly about the fact it was coming out. Turns out the remaster was actually kind of shit. Yeah, I was glad I didn't buy it because I remember you and I talking about it. We were you know, posting about this on the old Twitter machine that we were very excited that a remaster of this was coming out. However, I didn't get it day one. And then like about a week or so later, all I heard was it's not very good either. So I, I don't think I'd bother with it. It reached a point where Night Dive Studios, who have done some great enhanced remasters, you know, they're not a bad studio. They've done some killer stuff out there. They tried to fix it in patches as much as they could, because essentially the argument was the graphics that were remastered looked worse than the original running under Scum VM. Essentially, they eventually patched it to include the original version running on Scum VM as an option. So you bought the enhanced version and then you could just play the original under emulation. It's a shame as well, because they also released it for the Nintendo Switch. And I wish it had been better because I love the concept of having this game on the Nintendo Switch. That would have been great. As it is, Metacritic listed it as the 10th worst game of 2022. Damn, that's a real shame. It's a real shame. But if you can get the code cheap on a Steam sale, part of a humble bundle, just so you want a legitimate way of playing the emulated version, or if you don't care, or if you found a CD version in the charity shop, you can still play this game via various means today. I heartily recommend it. It's an absolute cracker. I mean, if you're a fan of Blade Runner, it really does feel like you're in that world. And as you mentioned, because it's a sidequel, it's got a lot of those same characters. You know, Sean Young's in the game and James Hong's in the game. So, like, it really does feel like you are part of the world that, that Snyder had put on screen. Not Zack, that is, but David L. Of the, you know, the world that they had kind of put together, him, him and Ridley. It's also worth playing because it was a ball ache to get to make itself because it is a game that exposes what a mess Blade Runner is in terms of who owns what and what can be done and what cannot be done. To break it down as, as simple as possible, best I can tell, the Lad Company own North American distribution rights for the film, Run Run Shaw owned international distribution rights, but the Blade Runner partnership owned all ancillary rights and were guarantors on the movie because they had to put money in when everything went over budget. They have as much rights to the movie as well as the other two companies do as well. I have encountered some complicated movie rights situations. Phantasm is a fascinating one when you talk about 1 and 2 and then there's Halloween and Friday the 13th especially as well. This sounds way worse and it's only one film. 
It's one movie, and even then, when they got the video game rights, they gave it out to Westwood, you know, because Command and Conquer was big, so they gave it out to Westwood. There were other studios that were trying to get it, and they announced that they'd done it with Westwood without telling the other studios, we're going with someone else. All of a sudden, all the other studios that are developing things and pitching things were like, what the fuck? Like, we were having conversations about making this game. That's brutal. It is brutal, and uh, despite the fact that it sold well, it cost so much to make so profit margin was low ergo no sequels get made and it's a shame because there were sequels planned right so we've got jake peters and paul wilson trying to get through a level of two raider two the quickest if we look at the map we can see that jake is still ahead but paul's done a little bit of catching up back on tomb raider and jake is still ahead but paul is catching up because he's got on his skidoo but he finds himself a cropper with a couple of blocks. Jake, however, is moving those blocks. And this is where our new thing for Series 7 comes in. It's Dom's new favorite thing in the world. Maybe he loves it more than pants. Maybe he loves it more than type situation. It's saying the word huge. Back to Paul now. He's just going to try and make this massive huge leap over. And it's an enormous big huge leap over. It's such a huge thing for the series. He says it twice in this small block of, of conversation. I love this challenge, but I do find the process of watching it to be quite bitty. Because of the type of game that Tomb Raider 2 is, it's very disjointed to watch because every time we come back to them, we catch up on what they've been doing and then we get highlights of what they're doing now. We very, very rarely actually just get uninterrupted footage of both machines side by side or a constant run. And it's a shame because I love the challenge as a concept. I think it's absolutely superb, but I feel at various times very disconnected from the challenge. I liken it to watching a speed run while you're doing something else. So, for example, like I was doing a lot of writing at work this week, and I had a speed run of Super Metroid running on my iPad. So I was listening to the speed run while I was writing. Comforting, the music is nice, and, and this and the other. And I, I just find it's a comforting thing to watch someone play and you know to hear someone play through uh, Super Metroid. So what you're doing is I'm, is I'm looking at my monitor while I'm writing, and then eventually, and then every now and again, would look down at the iPad and see where they are in the game. And because I'm not constantly watching it, I might look down and they're in a completely different part of the game. That's what a lot of this challenge feels like. You're right, like it is disjointed and stuff, but because you've got two people playing it side by side, you do get to see a lot of it. Because while Jake is way ahead, you then get to see what Paul did in order to get to the same point that Jake did, which you didn't get to see because Jake did that while the news was happening. I think I'd like it more if we got more picture-in-picture. Picture. Rather than the sort of the switched um, side-by-side. Yeah, yeah, just, just some picture-in-picture picture where just one screen is labelled Jake, another screen is labelled Paul. Yeah, you have picture-in-picture, picture, so you get the actual idea that they are doing this at the same time rather than what we get, which, again, it just feels, yeah, disjointed to me. I think what doesn't help it for me, I found this on my first watch through anyway, they don't have their names on screen. They do have the pictures of the two players. Problem is, is their pictures from, as you mentioned earlier, the hunched over position that they're in while playing the game. So it's not like you can really identify which one is which. 
speaking of someone that does have a chair that is pretty good for their posture, I'm just watching these guys and I'm thinking, even back then, I think this would have killed my back something fierce. But as we end the first part of this challenge, Paul is ahead by about a minute as we head towards our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first celebrity challenge involves scenes of unparalleled destruction on the aptly named Rampage, the PlayStation version of the popular arcade game. Taking the role of a maladjusted giant ape, my contestant must engage in a destructive frenzy of building bashing, car sanding, and people with the attempt to earn 10,000 points within a 90-second time limit. Smash and grab is the name of the game, and I advise my contestant to beat whatever they can get their hairy paws on in order to maximize points. The energy bar at the top of the screen indicates their general state of health. Of course, um, should this reach zero before that time's up, their reign of terror will come to an abrupt end. Well, this is a very Series 2 celebrity challenge, isn't it? It is, but it's not even playing an old game. This is a 1997 game, although you couldn't tell it other than the graphics are a bit shinier. Rampage World Tour, based on an arcade game ported to the PlayStation, the Saturn, the Nintendo 64, and of course, Luke, the Game Boy Color. Well, of course, if you're going to get it on anything, you want to get it towards the GBC. As the developers intended it to be played. I love the simplicity of this challenge. Because not only is it very serious too in the fact that it's a 90 second challenge, it's about scoring points. You have to get 10,000 points in the allotted time. And if you die, you lose. If you don't get the points, you lose. It just feels very old school as a challenge. It's a very old school challenge. It's a very old school game. I mean, I was reading some of the reviews quoted on Wikipedia and Next Generation said that this game is aimed at satisfying gamers yearning for past titles like Space Invaders or Pac-Man. Fair enough, but all this remake will accomplish is to make gamers yearn for the original more than ever. Which is true. Watching this challenge did make me want to go back and play Rampage. Or watch the movie starring Rock the Dwayne Johnson, which was actually not a bad movie. It was actually all right, all told. And yeah, I mean, that sounds like very much modern day gaming as well. We're just re-releasing all the old shit that you played when you were a kid. And a lot of it may just make you want to either play the original or make you or just want to feel nostalgic for the original now in the past that we've often been unfairly uh, accused of having celebrities on for their fantastic looks say as opposed to their intellectual prowess other games playing ability well this series that's all going to change so please welcome tonight's celebrity joe guest <laughs> Now, Joe, it's, it's funny, I get paid all this money to talk to celebrity guests, but sometimes all, all you want to do is just hug in life. Uh, we've known each other for a while now. Yeah. But we've never married. Um, we'll get round to it one day. We will, as soon as I finish litigation with my 17 ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. Now, Joe, I, I don't like doing this job. It's getting a bit boring. I think I want to become a glamour model. What tips would you give me? Um, a couple of breast implants, actually. They're getting quite large, actually, these just now. <laughs> okay, apart from the breast implants, anything else, or is that all I need? Um, try and grow a bit of hair. Right, not the first time that's been said. Do something about the legs. <laughs> These are all right. They're a bit hairy. Oh. Okay, Joe, you are playing uh, this game Rampage today, where uh, you're it's kind of a big monster, you're eating buildings and walking around town eating people. Have you ever done anything like that in real life? Um, after a few beers, usually, yeah. Yes, but you have. 
so recently. You're well versed in the art of it. Okay. I really like this uh, opening gambit of, hey, look, in the past, we've just been accused of booking celebrities that have no intellect and no actual gameplay ability because I fancy them. So here's tonight's celebrity, Joe Guest. Joe Guest is to Obi-Wan it is a name I'd not heard in a long time. And I mean, I remember Joe Guest being everywhere in various states of undress at this time. She was FHM, she was page three, she was loaded. She was appearing in other magazines that appeared on a slightly higher shelf as well. She was in all the various Paul Raymond publications. She was in Mayfair Men Only, Men's World, Razzle. It's the best name of most porno mags, Razzle. She was doing a catering course and saw an advert looking for models, and that is essentially what propelled her towards glamour modelling, page three, and then so on and so forth. But she would also appear on TV shows. She was in music videos. She was in the music video for Blur's Country House and stuff like that. She seemed like a lovely person. They're good friends as well. Like Dom even mentioned that in the interview that like they've known each other for years. That's a, a bit of a running theme throughout Series 7, as I, we mentioned earlier with the, the celebrity guests. And it means that you don't have any of that awkward Domness to an interview. You know, going back to Natalie and Brulia, that sort of thing where Dom, you know, has to prep someone ahead of time. Joe Guest has arrived on the set even knowing exactly what she's going to get into when speaking with Dominic Diamond. And because of that, while she is not the most charismatic person that Games Master has ever had on screen, she can hold her own with Dominic Diamond. And all of the jokes just end up landing on Dom as it should be. They are having a proper giggle with each other. They are just giggling like two naughty schoolchildren that are making rude jokes at the back of the class. It did leave me down a bit of a rabbit hole about Joe Guest because the thing I remember is I remember uh, when she appeared like back at the end of the 2000s, she was on TV show. What was she on? I think it was this morning, something like that. But basically, she'd been suffering from an illness. It had left her unable to work. Doctors hadn't at the time been able to diagnose it. And then a few months after that appearance, she came back on and confirmed that as a result of feedback from the viewers that had seen her on the TV show, she'd been diagnosed. She'd actually found out what uh, what was causing all these problems. And it was fibromyalgia. Unfortunately, after that point, she kind of mostly drops off the face of the earth. She did resurface in a couple of interviews in the mid-2010s or up to the mid-2010s talking about her fight with depression, particularly caused by her illness. Um, and then by the fact that, you know, one of her constant companions was her dog who she loved and the dog got cancer, which, you know, she talked about these struggles and not being able to work and the debt. And I really hoped to be able to find something, some indicator of where she is and how she's doing now. And I found a couple of articles from within the last two years, but those articles are just regurgitating the stuff from 2008 until the mid-2010s. And I just hope that she's doing okay. It was a hell of a fall through no fault of her own. It affected her mentally as much as it did physically. And so I hope wherever she is that, you know, she's got some degree of comfort and she's got some support. And I mean, she's great on this episode. She's a lot of fun. She's a lot of giggles. She plays along with Dom. She gets dip smooched at the beginning. I'm not sure they actually snog because it was kept off camera. Yeah. Like it, the, the dip happened. I don't think the smooch happened. But I did just want to say to go back to kind of this period in time and just like kind of when she was still an active glamour model, 
the names of some of the things that she was involved in, uh, including some video games. A PC game called Joe Guest in the Milk Round. She was in a number of TV shows, including Joe Guest's Private Parts, Joe Guest's Capital Exposed, Joe Guest UK Exposed, and my personal favourite, one she did for Playboy, Shagalicious British Babes. I'm pretty sure like, we get to hear more about one of those at the very least in an, in an upcoming episode of Games Master. Uh, I also love the fact that her Wikipedia page, and this doesn't happen with every celebrity guest, does reference that she was on Games Master. It's mentioned along with an appearance on I'm Famous and Frightened, which could describe most of the celebrity guests on Games Master. Just as a final note on her entrance, the Hawaii Five-O rip-off music that plays as she approaches the dock is awful. It is awful, as <laughs> as was the time that the poor Helena had. We didn't mention earlier, but you know, she's back on the show again uh, up from Series Five. She talks about in the in the oral history that. It was her role to row the boat to bring the guests to the dock. And the problem was she doesn't know how to row a boat. So she just ended up going round in circles at all time. And I think because most of the guests that come on the show were mates with Dom anyway, they didn't mind. But some guests were a bit narky about that there was a lot of just waiting around for something to get going. We'll get to them in a few episodes' time, I believe. We will get to them in a few episodes' times, indeed, yes. But as we've alluded to, Joe and Dom have known each other for some time, and yet somehow, Luke, they've not gotten hitched. Must be due to all the litigation with Dom's 17 ex-wives. So that's Wigfield and Zoe Ball. <laughs> Zoe Ball might have been one of them. Um, the Mermaids from Series 6. Uh, Panther. Yep. Uh, Cobra. Cobra, yeah, would be probably one of them. Yuri Geller, he was quite taken with him. Paul McKenna, I mean, he was hypnotised. Anything could have happened. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, you could probably work it out. If you go through all of Games Master, though I don't know why anyone would do such a thing. I very much enjoy the uh, the interplay between the two of them, you know, the whole, like, oh, I want to be a glamour model. She's like, well, get bigger tits then and more hair. And it's like... <laughs> The line of get bigger tits, I think, was one thing. Dom looks genuinely hurt by the line, get more hair. And then picking on his legs as well. Yeah, which really aren't that hairy. They're not. They're not. I mean, I've got, yeah, can confirm, I have hairier legs. And I thought Joe was very unfair to Dom's physique there. Well, uh, we've got lots of things going on in this show. We've got uh, two challenges. We've got two minutes going on just now. We're going to have Joe Guest uh, eating people in a second. One of those is getting me particularly excited. You can work out which one during this commercial break. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big and you're small. I'm right, you're wrong. And there's nothing you can do about it. No kid likes being yelled at. But it was precisely Harry's ranting and raving that gave Matilda the key to her power. To unlock that power, all she had to do was practice. No more, Miss Nice Girl. Roll Dahl's Tale of Girl Power, Matilda, now available to own on video. 
You can have the fastest legs or the strongest arms. But are you ready for a game where all that matters is the speed of your mind and the power of your imagination? We are, and we're waiting around the world to challenge you. The game's Magic the Gathering, and all you need to play is a brain, a deck, and a friend. Betish. Fetish fragrance. The new Honda CRV is so well equipped, it gives you a table, a fridge, and a very handy shower. switches from two to four-wheel drive automatically. Technology you can enjoy from Honda. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You can travel the world, but you won't find a shampoo quite like this. New L'Oreal LV Nutrivitamin Shampoo. I want to look after every inch of my hair. Just shampoo and let science do its thing. L'Oreal has created new LV shampoo with Nutrivitamins E, PP, and B5. Travel the world? Don't bother. Glossy, shiny, manageable hair. I can feel it. I can see it. New L'Oreal LV Nutrivitamins Shampoo. Then tell yourself, you're worth it. He was the last ever dragon. Here I come! Now he's yours to own. Dragonheart. Buy the video now. The ambassador's receptions are noted in society for their host's exquisite taste that captivates his guests. Ferrero Rocher, a taste sensation, rich, luxurious, unique. Excellent. Monsieur, 
Louis Ferrero Rocher. You're really spoiling us. Ferrero Rocher, a sign of good taste. We've got Jake and Paul who are fiddling around with Lara Croft's tombs uh, over there. We have got Joe Guest who's not fiddling with my tombs, unfortunately. She's going to be playing Rampage in a second. And joining me in the comedy box with his brand new Rachel from Friends haircut is Kirk Ewing. Kirk, it is fantastic to have you. <laughs> Just want to catch the tail end of Joe there. Very good. <laughs> we don't get a lot of Kirk in Series 7. It doesn't really know why either. Like, one of the things he says in the book is just like, yeah, I'm barely in Series 7. I guess they realised I was actually quite rubbish at doing Games Master. But I think he's amazing in this opening bit here, where Dom's just trying to do his piece to camera, and then Kirk grabs him and gives him a big old kiss on the face. Dom clearly did not see this was going to happen, and Kirk just goes... I just wanted to get the tail end of Joe there. <laughs> Series 7 of Games Master is probably the peak laddishness of the show. Probably just as well we only go 10 episodes. The the lad culture of it, which I, I, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about when we get to the horse racing game. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and like Violet Berlin's comments that she had about the, the, the show and, and you know what the show has become and all this other... As I said earlier, the show Dave Perry would not be a fan of, of Series 7. I don't know if anyone's ever asked him about it, but I'd imagine he's not a fan of this one. He's probably never seen it. It is well laddie, this show. But it's also, it's Dom and his mates having a crack. That's all Series 7 is. It is a group of friends knowing that this might be the last time they're all going to be together in the same place. So they're just going to be as laddie as they possibly can because this is the last time they'll get to do it. And nine times out of ten, the people looking the most stupid and the punchlines of most of the jokes are Dom and his mates, as exemplified by Kirk snogging Dom. Exactly. Dom didn't know that was going to happen. It was a amazingly improvised bit of television and Kirk's justification was both gross and hilarious. And he hasn't really got a lot of advice for the game either, which is just eat everything, smash what you can. Yep, that's his big tip for Joe, having already given his big tip to Dom. Hey. Now, Joe Guest has got to get 10,000 points in 90 seconds. 10 seconds into this challenge, she's already over 2,000 points. She is a fifth of the way through this challenge after only 10 seconds. It's remarkable. It's as close as it is. This is, I think, a challenge that was definitely measured at the person playing it. However, there is the issue in Rampage, and you actually see it in how she plays it, where your starting area, you've got a couple of tall buildings, it's quite easy to get some big points early on. But then you have to start walking, and that's when you encounter vehicles and enemies and helicopters and tanks and you get smaller houses, and the smaller houses give you less points. So even though Joe does make some mistakes, it is kind of understandable why the, I guess, the kind of the progression of the points does peak and then plateau for a little bit before eking up a bit. And it's not entirely down to how she's playing the game. It's just the way the level is structured. Her big mistake that she makes, and they point this out in commentary a handful of times, is that she doesn't eat people which is where a lot of your big points are. And the big jokes. 
Yeah, well, she smashes up buildings, and that's kind of what her big goal is, is she'll smash buildings and grab, like, you know, she grabs, like, a couple of items and stuff, but really a lot of the points that she's missing out on are eating the people within the buildings. What she tends to do is just grab them and throw them out, and you can almost hear, like, Kirk's frustration of just, like, eat the people, that's where the points are. So it's a, it's a combination of, as you say, like, the way that the level progresses in terms of how you get points anyway, plus her missing out on some big points early on, that means that when we get to the end of this challenge, it's really, like, down to the wire. Ten seconds in, she's got two over 2,000 points. With 10 seconds left to go, she only needs 900 points. And within those 10 seconds, she takes a hit and gets set on fire. And it's really one of those friends like that clock is just ticking down and down and down and down and down. She moves on to another building, smashes up. There's another person in there that she could eat. And she doesn't, even though Dom and Kirk are yelling and yelling to eat that guy. Because if she does, she'll win the challenge. And somehow, some way, the 10,000 ticks over before the seconds run out and she wins the challenge. But bloody hell, she made it harder than it probably needed to be. It was uncomfortably close at the end, but she made it. That's just grand. It's more than you can say for some celebrities. Oh, yeah. Th- this is no Ashley Pask situation, certainly. You went past some school children at some point, but you decided not to eat them. Um, to be honest, I was concentrating on getting up the building and I didn't want to eat the children. No. They were little and cute. Exactly. <laughs> they're cute and they're nice. You did have a problem with a chopper. So. I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> this is my joke, guys, is the best girl in the whole world. And, uh, but the buildings themselves, they, you, you've just you've got the large objects between your hands, you, you, you sorted them out, didn't you? Yeah. Don points out in the post-challenge that Joe went past some school children and chose not to eat them. And she's like, no, I was trying to climb a building. And they were they were cute. That's why Too I didn't eat, eat them. Too cute to eat. And Dom's like, do also have to observe, because it's a knob gag, that you had a problem with a chopper, which Joe says in another knob gag, yes, I usually do. Both of them start giggling far too much. And that is where this interview falls down really at the end of this is because yeah Don makes his chopper gag Joe responds to it as in as filthy a manner as she possibly can then just giggles for the rest of the time that she's on set and it's just Tom's just like well that's fine here's the joystick because I think this interview is probably over now there's a fairly laboured handjob joke that doesn't really go anywhere and then boom Joe gets her golden joystick lovely Nice little simple... It it was a very laid-back celebrity challenge. Much like the set itself, it was very laid-back, cool, chill, and calm. You know, there was... It was quite tense towards the end, but it really is just... It's so season two. It's a combination of season two and the Dom and Mates era. It's almost like a, a lovely little meeting point between the two of them. It was fun. I did have a good time with it, and I thought the Joe Guest was very entertaining. Back to the two massive tombs of Lara Croft, because that joke's still going. And Vic has an update for us. Well, it's getting pretty exciting over here at the moment, Dominic. They're now neck and neck, but as we join the map, you can see they actually had a few problems earlier. They got to a drawbridge where they needed a key to get past. This, of course, is where Jake actually managed to find the area that the drawbridge was in. As he turns round, we'll see the drawbridge that he had to unlock. He had to get off the skidoo and walk over to the lock. He suddenly realised, 
hell, I haven't got a key. Yeah, they've both got to the same point, which is that you've driven thwart on your skidoo all the way through to the end. Would you, Adam and Eva, Ash, you need a key, and the key is way back the other way. It is. It's one of those things that Tomb Raider did a lot in the early games, and I'd actually forgotten how much it pisses me off. There's a neat little feature, though, of of Tomb Raider, uh, much like it was in the first game, it, it's, it's done again in the second game, which is that if you're walking around an area, Lara will look to a certain direction. It's essentially your sonar for where the clues are. She's looking to tell you, the player, turn this way and we'll walk that way, and that's where the clue is. It takes them a little while, but Paul is the one who starts to find his way. So although he was sort of, you know, on the back foot first off, he does start to get a bit more of a lead here because Jake is having no luck whatsoever on this skidoo. Jake is lost. Paul, on the other hand, is on his way down the cliff. He finds the key. He's on his way to what is the final steps of this challenge, which basically means he's in pole position going into the final portion. But we can't spend too long looking at this game that is actually quite good because, Luke, we got some reviews to get to. With the entire population of Japan owning at least two copies of this game each, this has been heralded as the biggest console release in history. It's an RPG, but with over 70 hours of gameplay, it's absolutely huge and tells an epic story of mystery, intrigue, romance, and flashy pullback camera shots. It's the most eagerly awaited PlayStation title ever, Final Fantasy VII. So at last, the official English version of Final Fantasy VII has reached our shores. This is Sony's big attempt to push the RPG out of the clique and into the mass market. This game is beautiful. I mean, the emotional connection you have with the characters, the longevity of the game, the detail, the beautiful graphics, everything about this game is absolutely stunning. The basic concept behind Final Fantasy VII is to take the role-playing game and make it appeal to a much broader audience. And to do that, they've made the whole experience far more cinematic. There are cutscenes, added touches, wipes, new moves into combat sections, and the whole thing feels more like a film. Because this game has been so hyped, when you first put it into your machine and play it, you're expecting something completely extraordinary. Unfortunately, it's not quite as immediate as that. You are disappointed for the first couple of minutes, but believe me, that dissolves away. This game is incredibly deep and you will be completely engrossed. Every time you think you know where you're at with this game, there's a sudden change or twist in the plot. You never quite know what's going on. Once you think you've got a grip on the game, you suddenly find out you haven't, and your whole entire world is turned upside down. If you've never bought an RPG before, this is definitely one to explore. Final Fantasy VII is still a part of a very distinct genre, but it's a great story, and the appeal of great stories is always universal.
and crikey, we kick things off with quite a big review here. Arguably might be one of the biggest reviews that we'll have of this entire podcast run. It's Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation. It's, it's a shame, really, because what I want to be able to talk about is, is Rob and, and Richard Pitt, but it's Final Fantasy VII. It's one of the biggest blockbusters that, have re- that is released in 1997, certainly the biggest game. I mean, also out in 1997 was Titanic, and that kind of broke all sorts of records at the box office and broke various conceptions of what a blockbuster could be. And then we had Final Fantasy VII, which essentially broke the Western market for JRPGs. In a way that I don't think anyone thought they would do. And you see that reflected in this review here, because Rob has this moment during the review where he says, there's been a lot of hype about this game. You'll have heard a lot of people talking about Final Fantasy VII, but when you actually play it, you might find yourself disappointed, quote, for the first few minutes, because not a lot is actually happening, because this is a style of game that is not really commonplace in the West. People have played them. There have been RPGs that have been successful in the West, but they have been very much an Eastern thing. This is the game that broke the mold and made the JRPG format a standard of the West. You know, the Final Fantasy series becomes a standard. There are more RPGs released because of Final Fantasy VII than there would have been previously. So I find that line to be so interesting in context, because that is what the attitude from some people was. You're not straight into the action, so you'll find yourself disappointed for the first few minutes. I don't think I did. I wasn't a big JRPG guy. I had played some JRPGs or games that I now understand as JRPGs because you had things like Chrono Trigger, Bound, you know, all that stuff coming out on the snares as well. I think it's worth saying that obviously you can tell by the number seven, this is not the first Final Fantasy. We've talked about other Final Fantasies in the past, but I do think Final Fantasy VII owes a massive debt of gratitude to Final Fantasy VI the concept of expanding out the roster of characters and making them more fully fleshed out and a more kind of like a connective group of people. Six was just as breakthrough as seven, but seven was the one with its amazing cinematics, its amazing rendered backgrounds, the music, just, just, and also four CDs, four CDs, 38 hours or whatever it was of gameplay. This game was huge in every single definition of the word six is not problem because that, that makes it sound like it had one uh is the it, rpgs just weren't as big as they were now like when six does get a re-release on the the ps1 thanks in part to the fact that seven eight and nine had done so well so that so square re-released six for the playstation with the demo disc for uh final fantasy 10 and i think that is where a lot of people got to play six for the first time you know, because it was a SNES game, but not a widely available SNES game as some other titles would have been. So yeah, I think that is when people really got to grips for the first time with 6B, right? Like, but 7 for me is, it's the game. I remember my friend getting this and playing it and legit feeling that I didn't quite understand the scope of the game. 
Because your first mission is when you infiltrate Shinra. Mm -hmm. And then you go from there and you go back to the tavern and this, that, and the other. At this point in time, I was a Mega Drive kid. So games were a certain way to me. So playing this just felt like a whole other level of something. It was slightly, I, I was slightly hurt by the fact that Blade Runner was also set across multiple different discs. So I was used to, you know, things being, uh, you know, much, much longer games and stuff. But this just felt like a whole different thing. It's like all of a sudden you go back to the tavern and then from tavern you go to here, from here you go to here. Da, 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 da. And the more you play and just like the game just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the world gets larger and larger and larger. And before you know it, you've sunk 60 hours into this and you're not doing as well at your GCSEs you probably could have done. That is fair. I am somewhat glad I was done with my GCSEs by the time this came out. <laughs> I remember doing my GCSEs and my mum saying to me, you know, talking to me when my brother, my brother's six years older than I am and talking about what my brother did in order to help him with his studies. And studying just was not for me, just was not in the cards for me. And I was way more into playing Final Fantasy VII. And I sunk so many hours into Final Fantasy VII. And if I wasn't playing Final Fantasy VII, I was talking about Final Fantasy VII at school or, you know, reading the guides uh, in school or what have you, or on the phone to my cousin because he just got into the game and he was about 10 hours behind me in the game. So a lot of our conversations were him telling me about like where he is and I'm like, oh yeah, so like it's like this and you know, I'm getting reliving the game through his new experiences of playing it. And as I mentioned in the episode zero uh, when we did last week, multiple copies of this game, multiple save files, multiple memory cards. I, I, I downloaded it for the PS4 and replayed it again on there. I don't play a lot of new games, but I did play Final Fantasy VII Remake and I didn't really like it because a lot of it has the you know, same issue i have with a lot of like modern games where i just feel like the combat just doesn't really matter and it gives you upgrades but the upgrades don't really matter either i just feel like there was no real like it, it offers you new weapons but the new weapons are pointless because you're spending so much upgrading your other weapons so what's the point of giving me something new so i, I didn't really like the remake and i don't think i'll be bothering with the follow-ups of Final Fantasy 7 2. I don't think I'm going to bother with it. Just go back and play Final Fantasy 7 again. I probably will do. It's on my PlayStation 4, and I'll just start a new save file on there because I'll be honest, the last time I played it was a couple of years ago, and I can't really remember where I'm at on it. So I may just start myself a whole new save file. Do you know what I'm saying? It's funny enough, actually, when the last time I was playing it, I got to a point and then I suddenly stopped and I thought, I think I'm supposed to have Yuffie at this point. And I realized I'd not gone and done the side quest to go and get Yuffie. And I was like, shit. And I was like, okay, well, if I get to this point in the game, I can go back and get her. And then I was like, ah, I can't be bothered. And I didn't go, I didn't return to it. I was so annoyed at myself that I'd missed that side quest that I stopped playing. That's my last save file I've got on the game. So maybe I'll start a whole new one absolutely worth it and why not it's only another 30 40 odd hours yeah did there, there's you know almost 18 wasted hours there D don't think of it as wasted think of it as a dry run <laughs> dry run of like the 10th time i've done through the game yeah okay a slightly soggy run but it's amazing because in this review they really do big it up they do say that you know even if you are a little bit disappointed at the beginning that'll get blown away you'll be engrossed you'll just get absolutely drawn in the plot twist keeping you guessing your world will end up getting turned upside down multiple times so actually you'll 
end up the right way up again, but then may go upside down again. What's the score, Luke? 90%. Okay. This feels like like, all the footage captured here as well is the first mission in Shinra. And I wonder if this is one of those cases of it's all Richard and Rob got to play before they sat down to record the review. So that's they're judging the whole game based on that and what they have heard outside of those moments, which is, you know, we have heard how it was the way that the reviews were done for Games Master across all the series. But do you know somewhere where they didn't stop just after the first mission? Is it Games Master magazine? It is. Now, I will say we do have the December issue here, which has as its cover star a game that is reviewed just after Final Fantasy VII. Bomberman 64. And it's not actually reviewed inside, but it does have a four-page preview. So boy, howdy, Luke. That game's going to be worth some time. I think it's going to be a big hit. You know, I know it's got stiff competition from Final Fantasy VII, but I think it's going to hold its own. But what we do have is the Christmas issue. Hey. Which is much more varied and came out in November, which means the December issue was on and off the shelves in less than a month. This is something we've had with this magazine before, and it still gives me a headache, and I still don't understand it. But what we do have is we do have a four-page dedicated review to Final Fantasy VII. Luke, on one of your favourite games of all time, are you ready to try and strike it, Lukey? I feel like it's it's on my side. This is one of my favourite, and I, I should you know preface that did did not help me with symphony of the night but i think it will help me here well let's see how you do i think there is one here that will make you swear almost as much as symphony of the night graphics second to none lavish pre-rendered backgrounds and perky polygonal posiers oh i actually you know what that is way more positive than i thought they were going to be erratic so yeah while the backgrounds are really nice they are also just lots of shapes on top of each other moving around. So I think we're probably definitely in the 90s, but not late. So I'm going to say early. Now, my usual mistake here is I would say like a 93. That's what I would say. I'd be like, right, that's my mid. Do you know what? In fact, maybe I'll do. I was about to say that's the mistake I make, but I'm going to go with it again. 93. You made the mistake again. It's 94. <laughs> okay, right. So I'm, I'm basically there. Right, lovely. That's a nice barometer. Sounds. The sound chip music is nice enough, but a little Bon Tempe in tone. Top SFX, though. That's what you think when you, you think of Final Fantasy VII sound, isn't it? Those sound effects, not one of the greatest scores of all time. No, no, no. It's those sword-slashing sound effects. That's what, that's what really makes Final Fantasy VII. I get what they're meaning. Everything about this game is so next-gen. The music... Whilst very, very good, amazing composing, a lot of it does sound like it could have been done by a souped-up SNES chip. Yeah, I think so, because when I think to, like, particularly, like, Aerith's theme, that does sound like it could that would have belonged on the SNES. Uh, but anyway, right, so I need a score here. So um, I think we're, we're probably not sticking in the 90s. I think we'll go into the 80s. I'll tell you what, let's just... We'll remove 10. 84. Bang on the banana. There it is. It's one in the bank. Gameplay. Great exploring fun and some frantic real-time battles. You won't get (laughs) bored of this one. They're not real-time battles, though, are they? Yeah, they're not. Those are turn-based battles, (laughs) if anything. It's actually actually the opposite of of real-time battles. I I think that was a bit of a typo. I I would hope so, yes. It's actually, and I think I've told this story on the podcast before, 
the reason why my friend could not get into the game he was like i can't imagine being excited for a game where you have to wait to do your moves uh let's do is go back into the 90s here i would have said do you know what i would have said 93 so maybe i'll learn from my mistake 94 94 there we go okay we're on to a money winner here turns out final fantasy 7 is my game lifespan the biggest and most varied game we've ever played you'll be at it for months right this has got to be high 90s right 96 higher 98 higher i don't think it would have been 100 so 99 it was 99 <laughs> in hell so you Bloody didn't get hell. that one but for the best reason possible i mean <laughs> yeah. jesus 99 nine that's astonishing overall judgment new surprises and brilliant graphics and gameplay await you with every turn climb on board and enjoy the ride of your life brackets you may be disappointed for the first couple of minutes of this 40 hour game Mate, there are screenshots in here from throughout the entire game. <laughs> yeah. they, they've done due diligence. They played the game. Graphics 94, sound 84, gameplay 94, lifespan 99. Okay, well, this is definitely in the high 90s, isn't it? Surely. Like, I, I would have gone like mid 90s, like a 94, 95, but I think that 99 is going to bump it up. Pump it up, pump it up. So I'll say 96%. Boom. You got it. You have struck it, Lukey. And I think one of your most successful breakdown score records as well. Once you've got your bar set for graphics, you you honed in and you were doing well. But holy shit, lifespan 99. I never would have got that in a month of Sundays. And like even when you were saying higher and higher, I did the, even when you were like higher still after I said 97, I was like, it's not going to be 99. <laughs> like, I, th I thought I would say 99. You'd go like, no, no, lower than that. No, mate, stick a flake in it. It's done. It's a 99. <laughs> that is, you know, a very worthy score for Final Fantasy VII. 90% here on the, the TV show feels so weird. Maybe they're more forgiving for the next game we get to see, which is Bomberman 64 on the Nintendo 64. <laughs> I've always had a lot of time for little blokes who throw bombs, so I am totally tumescent about the arrival of Bomberman on the N64. The game's multiplayer modes include a new team battle option as well as the classic four-player free-for-all. There's also a one-player adventure mode where you wander around enormous 3D levels, planting bombs, solving puzzles, and wondering where all your mates have gone. The adventure mode is pretty awful all round. It bears a striking resemblance at first to a Mario kind of game. Unfortunately, it's nowhere near. There's a lack of creativity, there's a lack of depth. The one interesting addition to the multiplayer mode of this Bomb Man is the team battle. And this is where teams of players guard their crystals. Your own personal safety is no longer an issue. You have to guard your own colour crystals and destroy the other players. It's interesting because it actually makes use of the 3D levels instead of ignoring the fact that they're 3D and trying to apply the old-style gameplay to this new scenario. But don't get me wrong, if the original versions of Bomberman hadn't existed, this would be a very good game, but unfortunately, they do. I feel like the crux of this review is, it's not as good as Mario 64, is it? And it's probably not as good as Super Bomberman, or indeed, Saturn Bomberman, because it isn't, and it isn't. And amazingly, this is not the last time they go back to this well on the N64 
there are another three Bomberman games released for the Nintendo 64, and it's only the third of which, which actually goes, yeah, maybe we should just make it a 2D game again. <laughs> Although confusingly, that game, which was released in 2001, is called Bomberman 64. Huh. So they uh, they screamed it. No, no, they just renamed it something else. Uh, Bomberman uh, 64, the one we're talking about here, was called something like uh, Benku Bomberman or something in Japan, whereas Bomberman 64 in Japan was just called Bomberman 64. And actually, because it arrived so late in the Nintendo 64 development cycle, it never got released over here. I love Rob's last line of this review. Do you know what? If there were no original Bombermans, then Bomberman 64 would be good. But they do exist, so this one isn't. 65%. Entirely, entirely fair. It's, we, I suppose we could talk a little bit about the, the, the reviewers now. So Rob Wood uh, was a researcher on the show. I think he had been for a couple of seasons at this point as well. So he's been bumped up so he can now be on screen. But Richard Pitt is senior researcher on this series and someone that Dom has got nothing but nice things to say about. Like in the book, he even goes as far as saying, like, I think he could have been a presenter on a future series of Games Master, like really could have been front and center and, and led the way. You know, he had done a lot of stuff on Games World as well. So he was very much within this family of people. And it's sad to say, but he is no longer with us. Indeed, he passed away in 2009. And he did actually get to host some stuff for for Hewland because he worked uh, on the computer channel and he would sit alongside a number of people, often in silly costumes. Rob would be one of them. Uh, Rick Henderson would also appear there, dressed as a pirate. Alex Very was one of that crew. And yeah, he would do review segments, news segments. And you can find some of those on YouTube and you can see the kind of energy he brought to that kind of hosting. Good evening and welcome to Game Over. Hello. It's Tuesday and that can only mean one thing. What? Um... No, you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean anything. Let's start again, shall we? Good evening and welcome to Game Over. Hello. It's Tuesday and while that's not particularly significant in itself, we've got a whole new show of gaming delights to offer you. It'll be halfway over if you don't get on with it. Point taken. Here's tonight's menu. I think him and Rob and their chemistry together, it just really does lift these review segments up. They're actually telling us about the games, <laughs> which, you know, no offence to to Rick or no offence to Dave, but just like with, these guys have been given more room to breathe with their reviews and they are using it. Alex Berry, um, after uh, it came out that Richard had passed away in 2009, wrote a very nice sort of like a memorial to him if you just if you google richard pitt games master it's, it's one of the first results that you'll find so you, i would recommend you go and read that there we won't read it uh, on this podcast but it's kind of it's it's very nice to hear from alex himself you know just how much the uh, richard w was liked i I, di I didn't want to read this though from the book uh the that dominic had to write about him uh where he said he was totally a different voice to anything we had on the show before unashamedly intelligent words, camp delivery, and he looks like David Bowie, Alathin White Duke. He was the coolest reviewer we've had since Frank O'Connor. Honestly, every word he says is so charismatic, almost hypnotic, such a present. That review section is superb in the series. 
We have the biggest games like Final Fantasy VII, and Richard and Rob discuss controversial releases like Postal in a very intelligent way. And actually, in a weird way, I think that more than anyone else that appeared on the show, Richard Pitt could have presented a really interesting future version of Games Master. Sadly, we'll never know because he died in 2009, which is a bizarre and tragic footnote to this final series. And for me, a real cautionary note that not everyone got out alive from this show that was so utterly enmeshed in 90s behaviour on and off screen. He, he's absolutely right. We've said it. He said it. That these review segments are golden. I'm looking forward to that Postal review. Yeah. Because there's stuff to be said about Postal. In fact, I believe there was even a movie of Postal. And if only we knew someone that had written a book on video game movies. If only that person would ever come forward. I mean, would you admit to it? <laughs> but Bomberman here gets 65%. And I just want to briefly touch upon, I think I think you've had such a good time with Strike It, Lukey. I'm not going to tempt fate and ask you to do it a second time. But it is reviewed after that four-page preview in the December issue. Graphics, 72. Sound, 69. Nice. Nice. Gameplay, 48. Oh, bloody hell. Lifespan, 45. Overall, they've turned an oasis of a game into a whimpering bucks fizz. The worst N64 game yet. It's close, 48. They made it a cover star, Luke, and it was 48%. That's a, that's a paid-for cover star right there. Or just very misguided. But first review segment of the series done and one incredible high, one literal bomb it's time to round out our two major challenge paul is ahead he's at the drawbridge jake is only just slightly behind him now he's now got that key he is on his way i think really at this point jake just can't catch up they're trying to well you know tell you this story that he's only just slightly behind but the truth of the matter is he's he's miles behind him at this point paul has got this one paul gets through the end they, they even say on the commentary after a while, do you know what, actually? He's miles behind. There's no point in even showing what he's doing. Paul wins. And it's a bit of an anticlimax of Paul wins because he has to do this big dive. He has to find his way out of the water. He climbs up out of the water. He runs around the corner. And that's it. Game over. Game over. You win. Perfect. I was, I was just expecting a bit more like a golden idol, an arc. A carpenter's cup. Something to fight rather than just run round a corner. Tony Robinson stood in a trench. I mean, just any of those things would have been acceptable rather than just running round a corner. And that's it. That's Game it. over. But it's been a hell of a challenge. I just wish we'd seen more of it. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. And I, I know exactly what you, you mean as well. It feels like you see loads and yet nothing at all. We see bits of challenges but we don't get really long interrupted patches of gameplay yeah because you see you know a lot of recaps but then when they actually show the game footage of like the live footage as you're watching them play it it is like barely a minute of the actual you know show at any point it is dedicated to the actual like in live playing of it i think it's it's almost too bitty of a challenge to really be a big success but it's cool because you're getting to see Tomb Raider 2 and it's cool that it's a race and it's cool that it is a Bucky O'Hare's custom level made by IDOS. So there's cool elements to it. It's just it's not the, mo it's not the most perfectly executed challenge. 
you'll ever see of Tomb Raider 2. What went, what went wrong for you then, Jim? Well, I sort of lost it looking for the key. It was just too much time on the skidoo. But I suppose you can console yourself with the fact you have a lovely girlfriend in Japan. Yeah, and at least she wasn't here to see it. Yeah. Oh, hang on a minute. Oh, no, sorry, she just emailed us to say you're chucked. Sorry, Jake. Uh, Paul, fantastic display there. Totally in the bag. Was it down to a certain lucky pair of underwear? I think those pink pants. Yeah, that, that was it. What, uh, definitely. What do you think of the game itself? Do you think it's better than, than Tomb Raider 1? Very good graphics, very good gameplay, classic. Very, very good, definitely. And, uh, and Lara Croft, what do you think of her? Do you think she's an attractive girl? Very attractive. Yeah. You know she's not real? I know she's not real, but oh, I've yeah. seen the man, you know, not the... The man? Not the man. Hey, we should probably leave it there. I went to a... Uh, yeah. Yes, that's all right, mate. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, Digging deep hole. Deep yeah. hole there, mate. Don't worry. I feel so bad for Paul in this because he's had, to, he's had a good day. He's he's come on Games Master. He's shown that he's dead good at Tomb Raider. He's won the golden joystick, but he fumbles his lines here, something fierce. And Dom literally has to say, yeah, we're just going to move on from this. I mean, I guess at least he won, but I don't think I could watch it back if I was in Paul's position. I'd, I, if I could, I would just watch the episode up until that point because I feel like I'm one of those people, that's the only bit of the day I'll ever remember. In the same way that when we interviewed Dom and I got one of my lines wrong, that's the only bit of that interview I really remember. And he's doing so well as well, though, because he's like, he's like, yeah, had it in the bag. I'm the pink pants man. The game was great. The graphics. Does he think Lara's attractive? Yes, I do. And that's the point. That's the point where as soon as Dom goes, you know she's not real. And then he's just like, uh, but as a man with a man. And I'd, I, I've gone back and I've rewatched that segment multiple times. I'm still not 100% sure what was going on other than Dom thought it was funny. Paul was embarrassed and they moved on before they said something that would have got them into trouble at tea time on a Thursday. But hey, do you know what? He won. And he got the golden joystick and he lifts it aloft. He is our first non-celebrity winner of Series 7. And hey, a two-joystick episode. Two good, fun, two fun yeah. challenges. Okay, that is it for the first show of the series. Nine more to go. That means nine weeks until television becomes darker than a coal miner at the end of his shift wandering home at night only to find his lights don't work. See you next week, Tara. And our outro here, and it's an outro that we're going to get a lot. Every episode, in fact, it's just Dom saying, here's how long it is until this show is over. And television will be terrible when we're done. Yeah, it's nine more weeks to go, and then TV will become darker than a coal miner walking home after a shift to find that his lights don't work. And then we get the end credits. That's it. We wrap the first episode of this final series that should never have been. I mean... Luke, you're riding high on a strike at Lukey. What did you think? Series 7 is the series I remember the most and yet remember the least of. I remember the set. I remember a lot of the challenges. But also I don't remember like a lot of episodes completely. Like mm. I feel like when I've done rewatches before, I've done a lot of watching of Series 2, a lot of watching of Series 4 or Series 1. Series 7, and I feel like we've had this from a lot of the feedback as well, is the series that people remember the least. And I don't know why, quite why that is, 
So I'm so looking forward to going going through this and, and you know, as we are on the countdown to the, the end of the show. And as an opening episode, it really is an episode that sets out its stall to tell you, here is what you can expect from the next nine episodes. And that is a cool challenge with expert players, though we don't quite get more of that. Interesting way of doing the reviews. Celebrities that Dom is friends with. Dom messing around with his mates and knob gags out the wazoo. And the ever-present danger of electrocution. And that is Series 7 in a nutshell. So it's almost like the perfect first episode. It's not perfect, but it does accomplish what it sets out to do. It's got some great games on it. It's got some big games. Some like It's got a review of Final Fantasy VII. I mean, my God, it's got Bomberman 64. What more can you want? But it's also got Tomb Raider 2. It's a really, really strong start. And, mate, we got Mortal Kombat next week. Absolutely, we've got Mortal Kombat 4. There are more big reviews coming our way. There's more big news coming our way as well because we are in quite an era of gaming. It was a fun episode. It was a solid episode. It was a relatively stable episode. And if anything, I think my biggest criticism when you look at it is I wanted... Please, sir, I wanted more. I wanted to see more of the Tomb Raider 2 challenge. I think I would have sacrificed the Bomberman 64 review to get more of the Tomb Raider challenge. That would have been fine. I'm, I'm trying to decide whether or not my score is in the 90s for it. I feel so positive about the episode that I feel like it is... But it's only on reflection where I'm like, well, do you know, actually, the Tomb Raider challenge isn't as good as it could have been. The Rampage challenge is is so-so, but Joe Guest is fun. And it's got a a review of Final Fantasy VII that only feels like they played a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of it. So I don't know whether I am in the 90s for it. I can tell you I'm not. And I think you can probably guess what my score is, because it's the old standard. I'm going to give it an 88. DeLorean seems fair. Like, I was thinking 89 because I'm so, like, I get so much warm, fuzzy feelings about the show that I I, I feel so positive towards it. But it is not an all-time classic episode. But it is an episode of a series that has a style, and this episode almost exemplifies that style. Agreed. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. If you want to catch us on social media, we are on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to give us a bit of feedback in real time, if you want to talk with us, talk with other listeners, other fans of gaming, retro and new, and pop culture of all eras, you can do so over on our Discord, details of which can be found on social media and in our show notes. And you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where you'll get access to UCP Extra and our monthly community show, UCN. At the £5 level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. But Ash, at the £10 level, you get even more. What is it? Oh, at the £10 level, you get our glittery golden joystick waggle and mug, which is stuffed with sweet teas, retro trading cards, stickers, badges, all sorts of goodies. And what we do is we package it up nice and tight. We give it to an archaeologist. She gets on a skidoo. And unfortunately, it will never reach you because she's too busy destroying the animals of the world one species at a time. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Zach Zanderthal, William Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy David Fisher, Simon Selena, Sean Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard Downer, Retro Fun for Everyone, Reese, 
Phil Stopford, Nick, Misha, Matty Boom, Mark, Link, Liam, Kylie, Kevin, Joe Trigg, Joe Mitchell, Jamie Smith, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I am Cheadle, Harriet Mankill, Gordon Debster, Gordon Prance, David White, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Chris, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andrew Cummings, Alexis, Adam Warrington, Adam D, Joe, Colin, Paul, and Andy. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.